What's up, y'all? And welcome to another episode of Worldly Church Girl. It's your girl, your host, Lillian Harshaw. On today's show, I have a community activist, an arts administrator, an advocate for educational equality. She was the president of the Madam C.J. Walker Building in Indianapolis, Indiana. And she's opened not one, but two dance assemblies for minorities. It gives me great privilege to introduce to you this phenomenal woman, Dr. Terry W. Bailey. Here you are, this little girl from Springfield, Illinois, whose dream was to be a professional dancer. And in 1982, you were a freshman in college as a dance major, and you and your friend decide that you're going to go to New York and go see a major black dance company. And you only spent, which cracks me up, $750 for a round, yeah. for a round trip. So that tells you how ch- times have changed. Yes. And you paid $5 premium seats. And in that moment is where you saw for the first time on stage, some beautiful African-American dancers. At this point is when you found a new love and a newer passion for dance. You decided that you were gonna make dance education and arts administration your true passion. Then you graduated from college, you started your own minority dance ensemble, became a professor at Ball State and Chicago State, found another dance company, then became the founder and president and CEO of Cornerstone Center for the Arts. Then, girl, I'm going to run out of breath talking about all the stuff you did. <laughs> and then, a few years later, for two years, you were the president and chief executive at the great Madam C.J. Walker Theater Center in Indianapolis, Indiana. Yes. And then... <laughs> You decided that be a part of all these nonprofit organizations. And now you're like, you know what? I'm going to run for mayor. (laughs) You are something else. You just don't want to leave no jobs for the rest of us, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So let's begin with your love of dance. Do you remember the moment you fell in love with dance? I don't remember ever not dancing. Um, As a little girl, just always bopping around and moving around and not sitting still. And so when I was three years old, that's why my parents put me in dance lessons so that I could um, do something with all that movement that was going on. And I didn't realize that I was the only black student going to dance classes. In fact, um, I didn't even realize it. um, My parents enrolled me in a dance school in Springfield, Illinois, that there were parents that took their children out of the school when they found out there was a black student that was participating and taking classes. Now, I didn't know that young girl and my parents didn't share that But the teacher that and the director that was there at the time really um, was a forward thinking person and was not going to um, keep me from living my dream. Um, So those things were going on in Springfield, Illinois also. Um, But I was able to persevere and um, just really stay focused and not 
even know what was going on around me because God put me on this earth to dance and to teach others to um, find their, what I say, find their best creative selves. There never was a time that I didn't want to help people to dance or to dance myself. And what style of dance did you study? Well, back then um, it was ballet and um, I did tap and jazz, all of those things, but ballet was the most um, prevalent thing. And again, I didn't realize that I was the only black person, but I did realize that my body looked different. That, I mean, it just did. Um, I did realize that I was wearing pink tights, but my body, you know, my, my color was kind of different. I wore pink shoes and pink tights, and, but that's all they made back then in the 60s and the 70s. They didn't make flesh color. Flesh color was pink. <laughs> what it was. My love for dance, I just wore what everybody else wore because that's what I was supposed to do. Um, and, and it came from the inside out. So I was all about really performing from the inside out, not looking at a mirror and trying to, you know, be beautiful. I felt like I was beautiful from the inside. I remember when I was a little girl, I wanted to take ballet. So this is when we had encyclopedias. I looked in the encyclopedia under ballet and learned all the little, learned the point moves that they had in there because I just cool. knew that's all I needed. Once I got that down packed, I was there. Cause and that, mom and I mean, that is what you do. And then, mm -hmm. you know, just learning the fact that ballet, the terminology is French. So I was learning French. I was learning about classical music, even though, you know, on Sunday morning and throughout the week, I was hearing gospel music and I was, you know, in the black neighborhood and hanging out with my black friends. I had a love for dance. So I was able to be exposed to both worlds and, and know that it was okay. Now, what was the turning point? from wanting to be a dancer to teaching others the appreciation of the art? Well, once again, as a young girl, I remember in kindergarten when the teacher asked me what I wanted, you know how they tell you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I knew that I wanted to run my own school for the arts. I knew that from a little girl. Now, back then, they didn't have arts administration. They, they didn't have those kinds of programs in college um, and to know that you were moving in that direction. But I knew that I wanted to be in charge of a bunch of people, um, whether it was like choreographing a, 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 an ensemble or, or directing a play or, or running a whole center. I knew that's what I wanted to do back then. So there, was, there, was, there wasn't a turning point. I was brought on this earth to do it. And God's given me those opportunities to do it. Yes. I mean, what did the teacher say? When this little brown girl is like, I'm going to run a, a company. I don't think they knew what to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> and even, in, you know, even in high school, to, to, to be um, involved, again, uh, with a counselor that my brother, a guidance counselor that my brother and I had, where he didn't believe that black students could excel in school. And so they wanted to enroll us in, in classes that, that didn't challenge us and, you know, to be, to push and say, no, wait a minute, you know, we've been, we, we know what we're doing and we're going to move forward and, and be successful just because of the color of our skin. That doesn't mean that we can't be successful and, and educate ourselves. Those kinds of things, you know, weren't just happening in the forties and the fifties and the sixties, they were happening in the seventies and eighties and they still happen this to this day. And so we have to make sure that we encourage our young people and encourage each other 
to 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 do our best and be our best regardless of your differences absolutely so how did you decide where you would open your dance assembles at you're asking some good questions (laughs) (laughs) Um, thank you (laughs) yes i went to rutgers university um in new brunswick new jersey and again um dealing with lots of people that were wanting to dance and be a part of different programs and performances, we were finding that the students of color weren't being given as many opportunities as other students, other dance students. So I decided to start a company that was called the Minority Student Dance Ensemble and um, to give us opportunities to perform on campus and at other campuses to have fun, but also to learn and to be on stage. And believe it or not, that company is still in existence at Rutgers. I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to bring minority students together to dance, to, to help each other, and we had to do it. I mean, we weren't trying to protest. We were just trying to give ourselves opportunity. And yes. that's what we did. What was it like working and being the president and the chief executive officer at Madam C.J. Walker Theater? So that's like the biggest, I feel like one of the biggest honor as a, a Black woman. There, There is a nostalgia in that building that you cannot explain and an honor to be in that building just as a, a regular patron. So to be in charge of that space and what was going on in that space, I did not take lightly. Um, to be able to welcome people, whether they had been there a hundred times or whether it was their first trip to Indianapolis, and to be there to share that story of Madam C.J. Walker and to give people tours of the building and to help people to know, even young people. We started a, a summer program uh, called Camp Kuumba for uh, young people to learn the arts, to learn about music and dance and theater and drama and spoken word. So giving them an opportunity to be in the building to learn from African-American artists in uh, central Indiana was, again, an honor to provide that opportunity. And again, um, this the organization is continuing to grow. They have a partnership now with Indiana University, Purdue University, um, Indianapolis, which is called IUPUI, where they are building um, and doing a capital campaign right now and, and giving it uh, the overhaul that it needs. It needs a facelift. It needs some some things done to its infrastructure. And people are proud um, in Indianapolis, but all over the United States of Madam C.J. Walker. And, and there was a movie that just came out this year. So more people now are aware of what she did. And she built that theater. Actually, the, the theater was built because at one point in time, she went to the movies and the person in front of her happened to be a white person. And that person was charged 10 cents to go into the movies and she was behind that person and she was charged 25 cents Hmm. and she says well wait a minute that's not fair and so what she decided to do is i'm just gonna build my own theater and so she was not able to see the the results um of her dream to have that theater available for not just the african-american community but for everyone to see um african-american arts to um, experience the history of African-American art. But that was that was how it was built. There is actually still a beauty um, salon that's there, Madam Walker Beauty Salon that's there, there's a museum that's there, and there's a campus of uh, buildings that is owned by the Madam Walker Theater. 
Yeah, I've been in there and it's a beautiful oh. building. Yes, it is. So being a firm advocate for the arts and receiving multiple awards for your accomplishments, how important is it to you to bring awareness and appreciation for the arts? Well, I think sometimes people separate themselves from the arts. Um, you don't have to be an artist to appreciate the arts. Now, my brother, he's a scientist. He's not going to sing a song. He's not going to do a dance. He's not going to do spoken word. But he can appreciate the arts. He knows that it makes him feel better when he goes to see Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. He knows it makes him feel better when he hears his favorite, favorite song. It makes him feel better when he reads that poem that he really likes, reads it out loud. So an appreciation for creative communication. You know that, that there are certain colors that you like. And so if you buy a painting or you paint a painting yourself that has those colors in it, it makes you feel better. And so it's important to have that type of appreciation as a performer, as a patron, as a supporter, as someone who can afford to support the artist in the efforts that they're doing. So for me, as an administrator, it's helping all of those people to know that they are just as important. We need people to fund the arts. We need people to, to take the time and toil to present and, and prepare the arts. And then we need people to enjoy the arts. And so for me, I'm that person that likes to get everybody involved so that they understand their role and in the importance of sustaining and developing the arts. Because there is something about music and poetry and art forms that cannot reach any part of your soul except for that. Yeah, and, and it is a neutralizer also. Um, there are many times when we use the arts to neutralize a situation or to bring people together who might be different from each other or to help people to feel better. And so we might find a piece of music that because of its frequencies, it helps you to relax or it helps you to interact better or to sleep better. Um, or again, to, to see a beautiful um, landscape that has been painted and it's in your living room. And uh, maybe it reminds you of a place that you have visited and, and it's important to be able to have those um, things at your fingertips and to have those things to touch your soul. From the arts to politics, mm -hmm. how did that transition come about? That's a good question. You, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> um, I was working uh, for um, our city and um, again, being connected to all these nonprofits and being on all the boards that I was on and and just being very visible and very vocal um, in our community. Uh, I just was doing what I wanted to do, you know, doing what I thought was, was um, necessary. And the person who was the, the mayor at the time had decided not to run for reelection. And so there were people that reached out to me and they said that they wanted me to run for office. And I sort of laughed. I didn't, you know, I thought this is not something that I, I want to do. Um, but as I talked to my, my family, and I, I should share with you that my husband um, had two strokes four years ago, and so he's paralyzed. He is at home with an aide and sleeps in a hospital bed. And so when I get home at night, she's gone, then I take over. So there's, a, there's an added responsibility of caring for um, a loved one who has a physical disability and a son who has a mental disability. Mm. Uh, a young adult son, African-American son who's out, you know, in the streets and trying to make sure that he is safe 
in the way that he responds to people. Dealing with them and knowing that they both said, and my mother said, oh, yes, you should run for mayor. We would support you 100%. And I was hoping they would say no. Um, no, we can't. That's too much for you or that's too much for our family. But they pushed me and said, no, we believe that you should run for mayor. Working with all of the people that were a part of our campaign, which, you know, as Jesse Jackson would say, a rainbow coalition of people <laughs> that just happened. I mean, we weren't trying to find 60% black and 20% white and 20% Hispanic. It just happened um, that people felt comfortable and they felt like they belonged and they felt like they were included as a part of our campaign. And it just gave me a chance to, to know our community in a greater way. Um, and as a result of all of that, I didn't realize I was doing this, but as a result of all of that, I became the first African-American male or female to win a primary election in our city. I guess I'll be in somebody's history book, hopefully. <laughs> but that I ran. I didn't run it because, and I was the first female in the Democrat Party to win a primary election and to run in a general election. The first female. It's unheard of. I don't know why. But yeah, I was the first female also. The people that came out and voted, voted for my opponent. And so I didn't win. But I would have done each and every day again because of the, the opportunities that I had, um, working with the, the campaign committee that I had that was top-notch, phenomenal, family-like, um, Christian, just, just, we lifted each other up. And I hope that people were watching. In fact, our tagline was, together we rise. And I think people are seeing that now. Some of the things that we weren't allowed to do, because there were some things that were going on in our party that, that I didn't agree with. And so we chose to run separately um, and had our own, I had my own campaign office and they weren't giving us the paperwork that we needed. And so we had to go around them and go to the state office. Now I found out that the state office is giving people opportunities to get the information they need and not have to go to the county. So that's one of the things we were able to fix. So there were things that, you know, that allowed us to what, what I call crack the ceiling um, for the next person. So my job now is to pass the baton. Uh, to, to still be vocal and still be visible, but there are other people now that, that seem to have gotten their voice, and I think it's, it's just marvelous. It, it, it's such a blessing to be able to see them and see how they're moving forward and feeling confident in the things that they're doing, but yeah, I didn't, that, this was not in my 10-year plan, but um, God sustained us through um, this last year, and, and again, I would do it all over again. I know that you got your both feet planted, still involved in what's going on in Muncie's. So just because you didn't win, I know you're still making sure that whoever does, they're going to have to step up. Yes. And the, the weird thing that's happening right now is that I'm doing it behind the scenes. I used to be that person that was out in front, that was, you know, with the, the, the bullhorn, that didn't mind sharing, you know, what the people were thinking. But because of the pandemic, the COVID-19, and my husband's um, pre-existing condition, I have had to be at home. I have had to make sure that I'm not bringing home any disease or anything. So I have been sheltering in place. 
So going through all of this and all of this COVID-19 and coronavirus, which I believe I had in late February, it has been very difficult to not just say, well, I'm just going to take my mask out and I'm going to go and be with these people. But what it has done, it's allowed me to work behind the scenes and to help those people to do the things that they're doing, to just give them advice or to support them financially or to pray for them or to give them some, you know, some things that they can do to, to help them. So no, I have not been like on, on the stage. I've been invited to speak at events and I have said no, but I have recommended that next person. You should ask this person to do it. They're ready. And you know, with the COVID-19, I've always kind of looked at it as also a blessing because we are at home we have to focus on whatever we're working on more intently, more, more with intention, if you will. Because if you got 500 things going on outside the home and then you try to go home and try to take care of home and those 500 things, you really can't do it. But now that it's cut in half, mm-hmm. those that 250 that you're working on is worth a thousand. Because I was one of those people initially where I was doing those 500 things and then I got sick and then COVID hit and I just shut down and I shut down because I had been spinning and running and going so hard every day with what I called no days off for an entire year. And then all of a sudden, boom, it hits. And Mm -hmm. I was exhausted. I couldn't lift my arms because I couldn't lift my arms. Other people were able to lift theirs. People were able to lift their voices and to be visible. And I was able to support them. And it was a beautiful thing. It's still a beautiful thing to see how people are moving forward and stepping up in a way that they may not have done six months ago. Now, I'm going to go back to your husband uh, being a full-time caregiver. How are you doing? (laughs) You know, I... I used to be that person that whenever someone would ask me, how are you doing? I would say, oh, I'm doing fine. Everything's fine. We've got it all under control. No, we don't need anything. Yes, we're good. And I kept saying that and kept saying that. And the more I was saying that, the more I realized I'm not doing good. I'm struggling. This is not normal. You know, I had a husband that was very active, that worked full time, that, you know, did his own thing, you know, did his own thing. And now he can't do anything. He can't even roll on his side by himself. He can't get up out of the bed. He's in the bed 24-7. 24-7. He can't get up and walk. He can't sit up. And so to go from that um, May 5th, 2016, and four days later, he lost everything. Mm. And we made the decision not to put him in um, uh, a nursing home. And that was a decision we made as a family figure that out and pretend like it was all okay because I was that person that always, you know, could figure stuff out and everything was always okay. Um, But I had never dealt with a person that had a physical disability that I was that close to. Right. That I had care for 24 seven. And I was running back and forth home to, to, to make sure that he was clean and dry and fed. And, and, and I was doing that because I was close to my work was close to home. And then I realized I can't keep doing this. And so I was able to, to get that support for him. And there's a person that has to be there 24-7 to assist him. But it was not easy. 
And it's still not always easy. You know, if there are evenings I come home, even when I was running for office and I was dead tired, but I had to care for him. I couldn't just stop. He had to have his meds. You know, he had to have his shots. He had to be cleaned up before he went to bed. I mean, those are things that just had to happen. And so I had to find the strength to do that. But, you know, God gave me the strength to do that. He would, you know, as people say, he doesn't give you more than you can bear. And there were days that I would, I would, you know, lay in my bed and I would say, God, are you sure you got the right Terry babe? But because of that, it's allowed us to spend more time together. I think it's allowed him to you know, have contemplation time. But yeah, life is really, really different. And um, but but we call it our new normal. We've been saying new normal for years. You know, that's what people say now. But this is our new normal. This is what we do. This is how we do it, because this is this is who we are. Yes. And it takes a lot of strength to say you're not okay, too. Physical strength and emotional strength. Years ago that I broke my hand and I, I'd never broken a bone. I, I had a cast on my hand, which meant I couldn't push him over on his side so that he because he, he needed to be rolled, you know, different times of the day. Right. I couldn't I couldn't change the sheets. I couldn't I couldn't care for him. And that was a time when I realized God was trying to tell me, I tried to tell you that you needed help. I tried <laughs> to tell you that when people ask for help, you know, they want to fix you dinner or they want to come over and give you a couple hours so that you can rest. I tried to tell you this. So now I'm going to have to sit you down. Mm-hmm. And that's, he had to sit me down because I could do nothing. We women are, are, are not so like that. We're like, no, I got it. Uh-uh. I got it. No, I could take care of him, the kids, the house, my job, the dog, the cat, the fish. And then that 1% right. for yourself, you're too tired to even do that. So, I couldn't yeah. even do my own hair. I had to start wearing a wig. So what I did was I had a wig party. Because I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to do that, let's let's have every, let's have fun. So we went to a store that that sold wigs, and we had a little wig party, and everybody got to try on wigs. Because I couldn't even do my hair with one hand. Bless your heart. <laughs> but I get it. I understand because uh, my husband just got his kidney a few months ago, and oh, wow. so praise God, it was you know restriction of he can't lift anything more than eight pounds and mm. so that means more than eight pounds right everything 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 so it's like i i get it i i don't mind cutting grass it's oh. very but it's very it's very therapeutic but i don't like getting dirty <laughs> mm. I, I don't like sweating i don't cut grass Mm-mm. And when I met my husband, I told him I don't do outdoor. <laughs> I never cut grass ever in my life because I had seven brothers. There so I so I had to learn how to cut grass. You know, in nature, I don't like nature. I don't like bugs. I don't like frogs out here and I'm cutting grass and this giant frog jumped on my leg and I almost lost it. Ooh. I looked across the street and the neighbor was just standing there staring at me. I like, I, I'm like, I, and I had my earbuds on listening to music and I just turned around and just yell. I got, it was a frog. So I didn't think he was, I was crazy, but he still just went back in the house and shook his head. Like, okay, she's so girly. <laughs> you know, I'm like my nails. I'm like, I had to get rid of my nails. And I was like, Oh, this is too much Jesus. But 
So I get it. But again, it was that, you know, that mentality, I could do it. I got this. No problem. After I cut grass, I'm gonna do laundry and I'm gonna clean the house and I'm gonna do yeah. and I'm gonna cook dinner. But yeah, so I I I don't understand fully. I have I empathize for what you're saying. So yes, bless your heart. And you're talking what going on five years now? Uh, four and a half. Yeah, four and a half. Mm-hmm. God bless you. God bless you. Well, you anytime someone offer you some help, please take it. It took, like I said, it took two and a half years to figure that out. But yes, I do. Anytime someone offers. In fact, a lady texted me today and said she was going to come pick up the dishes that she brought dinner in. And I'm going to send them back with a note telling her how good it was and (laughs) wants to cook for us again. Ain't that it. So do you have any advice for someone who has a demanding career and life just pushes them emotionally into the corner what advice would you give them yeah one thing that that you know has really kind of just been on my heart lately has been the the term vessel and you know vessel kind of holds things and and you can fill it up or container um that that holds things and what we tend to do when our containers get full you know we have those totes now that we can buy at the store when our tote gets full Instead of emptying it or cleaning it out or rearranging it, we go to the store and buy another tote. And then we have another tote and another tote. So they're stacked up in the garage or stacked up, you know, boxes are stacked up. Vessels, our vessels are getting full and overflowing. And pretty soon we're just overwhelmed by all that we have instead of allowing some of it to go. And I see that just the opposite we fill ourselves up and then what I do what I'm doing you know all the work that you know kind of the back into the corner we're pouring ourselves out we're pouring out pouring out pouring out pouring out until we're empty and we're trying to shake this bottle of emptiness Mm. there's nothing there to give but we're still trying to give And we're frustrated because we can't do it the way that it needs to be done. We're tired. We're, we're forgetful. We're, we're just, we're irritable. And Mm. so we've got back in, we've got to figure out how to pour back in, pour things back into our vessel. Now that isn't just us doing it ourselves. We've got to, you know, find the time to, to talk to God Find the time to listen to that song or that music that makes us feel better. Allow people like the lady that's going to pick up these dishes to cook for us and fill us. Uh, We've got to fill ourselves with the things that are positive, the things that are going to get us through, the things that, that are good and perfect and pure and loving so that we can give back out. And so it's a cyclical thing that I don't think enough about. And I think a lot of women don't think about it enough that we give and give, but we don't allow things to come back into us so that we can continue to give again. And so that's what I would share with, with women is that it's okay to be empty. And to, but the thing is, we have to know that we're empty and know that we have to fill up again. We have to in order to do the things that God has put us on this earth to do. We can't do it empty. 
Amen. A car won't run if it has no gas. That is true. Amen. And we can get out and push, but imagine how, how much more tired we would be, how long it would take us to get there, and how we would be once we got there. Right. And the way me and you don't feel like liking the outdoors, we ain't trying to push no car. <laughs> I'm not going to push a car. And, you know, you give your frog story. I actually stepped on a frog this week, walking the dog. And it freaked me out because he was running towards something. And I stepped on it. And I freaked out. And then when I went back to look for it, it was gone. So I I told my husband, I said, I stepped on a frog. It is the nastiest feeling. feeling. How can someone contact you? Well, I'm working on a website that should be done next week, and it will be terrywoodbailey.com. Okay. Um, the other thing is that I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, um, Terry Wood Bailey. Uh, feel free to connect with me. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I love to interact. I, I took some time off, and I'm glad I did from social media for a while in the spring. <clears throat> Because I was on it too much, so now I'm I'm not on it as lot as much as I, I was before. But I do connect every day. My email is also Terry Whit Bailey, T E R R Y W H I T T B A I L E Y at Comcast. Dot um, a certified nonprofit consultant. I'm happy to interact with people and help them with their nonprofits, um, whatever they're doing if they're trying to do some. Um, financial stability or working on um, trying to, to hire a new executive or, or trying to write a strategic plan. I'm happy to help to do that. Okay. Amen. Now here's your last, your last question. Are you ready? I'm ready. If you could have any song be your theme song, when you walked into a room, what would it be and why? Um, well, you caught me off guard. If you'd asked me before, I would have thought long and hard. But the first song that popped into my head when you said that is an old song that was sung, uh, sung by Denise Williams called Black Butterfly. Oh, wow. You did go back. I went, but it's the first song that popped in my head. Uh, if I remember it correctly, it's Black Butterfly, Sail Across the Water, Tell Your Sons and Daughters, um, where your secret lies. I think that's what the words were, but it's, it's, it's just being the person that you were meant to be and to share it with the world. Um, and the song is really beautiful too, but, but a black, but a butterfly is someone that takes the time to become who it is. In this case, who I am. It wasn't something that happened overnight, but it was something that I was always meant to do and meant to be. And so butterfly is what I became and a butterfly is who I am and hopefully beautiful and and strong at the same time you are you are well thank you so much I enjoyed you I enjoyed you too we, we need to connect again amen yes we do thank you okay. thank you thank you so much you do the same have a good one be careful going home all right talk to you soon okay Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for being on my show. Your schedule is beyond busy, and I'm just so thankful and blessed that you took the time out to share your story and your passion with us. And if you would like to be on Worldly Church Girl, 
click the link below, shoot me an email, and let's see what we can do with that thing. And you still haven't subscribed? What are you waiting on? Hit that subscription button so you will never miss another episode. And as always, thanks for joining your one and only Worldly Church Girl. <laughs>